Hello everybody, this week the Comics Guys explain the history of Marvel, part 5. Explain this. So, uh, last week we started off, or ended rather, with Marvel firing Jim Shooter in the end of the Shooter era, which many of his employees may have said came too late. Famously on their bulletin boards, Chris Claremont posted, Ding Dong, the witch is dead, <laughs> the day that he was fired. So. Mm. So what happens next? Shooter's gone. Someone new's got to come in, right? Right. Well, the next editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. And DeFalco kind of, you know, has, has come up through the ranks. He's, you know, has been a writer, of a perfectly serviceable, if not amazing writer, uh, who understands the process and is, compared to Shooter, considerably more, you know, mild-mannered and interested in everybody getting along. And so very quickly the you know the attitude in the office kind of changes right like that defalco is not interested in being a celebrity he's he kind of like gets rid of all of like the jim shooter you know soapbox stuff that uh, you know had was being printed and kind of like you know puts himself behind the scenes and i think a lot of the creative people at marvel kind of appreciate that you know very early on as defalco comes in at the time that he's coming in uh is when the spider-man wedding event is going on and so like his managing of that as successful as it was, you know, the whole Peter and Mary Jane getting married. They rented out Shea Stadium with a couple of actors, uh, you know, like dressed up as them to, uh, you know, to, to publicize the wedding. All went so smoothly and so well compared to the kind of like chaos and drama that was part of the shooter reign, basically, that everybody was just like, oh, this is wonderful. Look how quiet and normal everything is, you know. And Spider-Man and X-Men are both selling enormously well, right? Like at that point, that's what's keeping Marvel you know, at the top, basically, that there's a number of different X-Men titles, there's a number of Spider-Man titles, and then there's kind of everything else, right? You know, today, it's kind of like hard to remember to remember a, a time when the Avengers weren't the biggest selling thing. But for the most part, the Avengers at this point are definitely a second, if not third tier, you know, set of characters compared to how important the mutants are, and Spider-Man is. Yep. So New World has now owned Marvel for three years. And as far as they're concerned, it's a bust. It's a it's been a disaster, right? He has uh, they they are not succeeding with the movies. You know everything everything has worked out poorly as far as that's concerned. And so they turn around and they're looking to resell Marvel again. And this time, the guy who buys it is a guy named Ron Perlman. And Ron Perlman was a you know kind of like a well known kind of corporate raider type who came in. He he had owned uh, a part of Revlon the makeup company, that sort of thing, is where he had made a bunch of his, his early money. But mostly he, you know, churned through companies, right? Like he bought companies, moved money around, saddled some up with debts and then got rid of them and then, you know, sold at a profit and got out. And so along with Marvel, at the same time that he is buying Marvel from New World, over the next several years, he will also buy Toy Biz. He will buy Fleer Skybox trading cards. He'll buy Malibu comics for a bit. And then a bunch of other different things unrelated to the collectible industry, and will kind of will basically like take on a bunch of debt from these various companies and move that debt around depending on you know which company he wanted to look profitable at a given time. In that sense, he was very much like Martin Goodman, right? Uh, you know, he he did the same sort of thing, except in his case, these were all companies that he had nothing himself to do with, except moving the money around, right? Like he was the he, he was the investor guy for this. And the amount of like gross debt that this whole set of companies had was basically unmanageable 
for the profits that they could possibly bring in. But at any given time, you know, he could move a bunch of debt from one company to another and make one of them look good, you know, and right. and did that for several years. Um, Marvel itself, leaving aside the debt servicing that Perelman was making them do, was tremendously profitable at this point. We've got, you know, McFarlane, we've got Liefeld, we've got Lee. This is the era of like the artist superstar. We've got variant cover versions of everything. Different comics are coming out now with, you know, six different covers. So collectors got to have them all. They're selling the same comic to them over and over again. Um, you've got these like really splashy, low density stories, right? That's the amount of story that would put into one issue of a comic went way down because you've got to have room for all of those cool splash pages, right? With all the violence and the grim darkness and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the, the writers were working less hard to fill in, you know, a comic, uh, and the artists were, you know, the ones kind of like generating sales, uh, particularly to collectors. And in 1992, several of these artists kind of like got together uh, and said, you know, it's it, we really, we could be make we should be making more as a percentage of this, right? Like, why are we going through these big publishers the, and the answer being, of course, that they were established, right? You know, that mm-hmm. they, in many cases, you know, they, they were the ones providing the IP that were making these characters, um, I'm sorry, making the artists profit, so, uh, profitable. But they all felt that they really didn't need uh, big publishers. And so McFarlane, Liefeld, Lee, Wills Portacio, a couple of other people decided to get together and they form Image in 1992. As a studio, and they're going to do, you know, they're they're going to self-own their own stuff. It will be kind of like a co-op uh, setup where they, there's a publisher for all of these, but each uh, individual creator is going to own their own stuff. And they start uh, going to both Marvel and DC and every noteworthy third publisher that was out there, and basically cherry-picking their talent mm-hmm. and offering them great deals to come on board. Uh, mostly, this was artists, but famously, for example, they also went to Chris Claremont. And said, you know, we are going to need a writer for some of these things. Uh, even though you're not as cool as us because you're just a writer and not an artist, we know that you write fast and your stuff has been pretty popular. So why don't we hire you to come work for hire for us? We'll just pay you half again what Marvel is paying. And Chris is, of course, like, you know, I've been writing X Men for 13 years, 14 years at this point. Um, yeah, making half again what I was making before uh, sounds fabulous to me. And he, you know, went off, even though he was not doing any creator owned work, he was doing the, you know, under the same kind of contract deal that he had done with Marvel. He was making a pile more cash for doing it. Um, the day that image is announced, uh, to the press, to the public, Marvel comic book, sh- Marvel shares of their stock dropped eleven dollars that day, because they knew, you know, like so much of the value of Marvel at that point was in the art of McFarlane and Liefeld and Lee and all these other people, right? So uh, that same year, uh, Martin Goodman finally dies uh, in 1992, the age of 84. He is completely forgotten by everybody. Marvel makes no reference to his death at all. Uh, and basically, it's his passing is basically unnoted in the industry, despite having created all of this. Um, X-Men cartoon, uh, the, you know, the, the, the ones that we remember the most for it kind of like begin in 92, right? The, the best uh, uh, X-Men cartoon series. 
um, starts at that point. Yep. So Marvel events are doing well, right? Like the day, the 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 month to month typical Marvel comic has fallen off in sales. Sales are going down, but the events are still considered collectible and the collectible market is still supporting them. So of course, Marvel is spending more and more time doing events and putting less and less effort into their actual monthly regular issues. Um, and so their stuff is selling. Image's stuff is selling at this point because it's the brand new hot thing. Um, and stores are being crushed because none of this stuff is, you know, is enough to, they, they can't, the events aren't enough to sustain them, right? And like so many of kind of like the long-term regular sellers that they were, had invested time and energy in had become bad, basically, right? Like, like the readers just were not interested. And so uh, a lot of retails, uh, retail operations that had like kind of sprung into existence over the past decade are starting to collapse. They're starting to, you know, they're starting to fall apart. And the collector's market is really starting to look very shaky. Right. Um, Marvel, of course, has still bought into kind of like its superstar attitude, right? And is spending enormous amounts of money uh, promoting itself and doing marketing for the artists that they still do have. Uh, to the point where, for example, their Christmas parties become these big, massive publicity events uh, with actors and bands and DJs in these, you know, really expensive locations that they're having for them. Uh, Tom Brevert says called it the the ins the insane spectacle of excess for like the promotional expense that they went through at conventions and their parties and that sort of thing to promote all of this. In over the course of 1993. After that eleven dollar drop on day one, the stock fell an additional sixty percent. So Marvel is, you know, clearly running out of cash. They're burning through it at an enormous rate, and uh, you know things just do not look good. Early nineteen ninety four, uh, Jack Kirby dies. This is, to Marvel's credit, at least like a big enough deal, right? Like this, they actually do kind of like promote and let, you know, everybody know. And both Marvel and DC uh, kind of, you know, like go out of their way. Stan isn't even sure at this point. It's been so long since he's even like talked to Jack. He's not even sure that he's welcome at the funeral, right? And so he has some friends of his who are also friends with Ross Kirby, with Jack's widow, check in with them to see if it's okay for Stan to come to the funeral, because obviously if he does, it's going to be a big publicity thing, right? Like the, you know, the people are going to, are going to be waiting to see whether or not he shows up. Um, and she says, you know, of course, absolutely. You know, that's anybody can come to the funeral. That's great. You know, we'll, we'd, we'd be delighted to see you there. Um, I'm sure Jack would have appreciated that. And so he does attend the funeral, uh, sits in the back wearing sunglasses, doesn't really interact with anybody else at the funeral and slips out a side door before the at, right at the end of the funeral, you know, before they have kind of like the the um, processional out, basically. Mm. And it's kind of one of the saddest moments of Marvel history at that point, right? Like that, like you know, that that they couldn't get that relationship repaired, uh, you know, before they both passed or before Jack passed on. Anyway, that's a shame. Nineteen ninety four is a terrible year for Marvel across the board, right? Like what we said was, you know, like the events are what is selling, Spider-Man is selling, the X-Men are selling. 1994 is the year of the Spider-Clone stories, the clone saga. 
which famously drags on endlessly. So many different people are involved with it, all with their own different ideas about like how things are going to work. So much editorial backbiting and fighting behind the scenes. Everybody kind of like hates the basic plot of it as, it, as as it's happening. Some people are absolutely outraged by the concept. Readers are upset. Everybody is upset by this. And, uh, you know, that really kind of like knocks the slats out from under one of the pillars that was holding Marvel up during this kind of, you know, like struggling financial time, right? I've heard this uh, to like 2001 kind of, or to like 2000 referred to as the like Marvel Dark Age. It, it really kind of is, yeah. Say from like '94 to, to uh, you know, well, basically the emergence from the from the bankruptcy, which we'll talk about for it. So right. yeah, so say '94 to '99 really right. is is kind of like the worst that Marvel goes through. Um, they, in an effort to kind of like improve their financial situation, they decide Marvel decides the part of the problem is we are spending too much on distribution. There is no reason for us to pay a distributor a 10% slice of every comic book that we go out the door so that the, that distributor can get their stuff to retail, right? That's not efficient. What we need to do is buy our own distributor, and then we'll go exclusive with that one, right? So they buy mm -hmm. Heroes World, which is one of the major distribution companies uh, you know that has has existed basically since the 70s at this point that is you know the the primary way the physical way that comics physically get into retail stores right um and then they say okay heroes world is now we only sell to heroes world and heroes world only buys marvel right so one of the customers for dc and everybody else disappears um and marvel you know is now running a distributor company on its own and charging itself nothing basically for doing that Right, because the whole point was to save money on this. So, of course, Heroes World, every expense that goes into Heroes World is being looked at as like, well, that's just a waste of money, right? The whole reason we bought this was to save money. Mm -hmm. So, Heroes World begins to kind of like fall apart structurally because nobody is spending any money on running Heroes World. Um, and Heroes World will fold disastrously in a couple of years. Um, Marvel also realizes at this point that. Uh, one of the reasons since New World that they have uh, had great difficulty selling their movie ideas, right? Like it's they see they can't understand why nobody wants to make a Spider-Man movie or why nobody wants to make an X-Men movie or or something like that, right? And part of the problem was the development hell that these would go into is that Marvel's deal with Toy Biz, which was also owned by Perelman, was an exclusive deal. So nobody could make any money off the toys and support materials and everything if they did a Marvel movie. If a studio decided to do a Marvel movie, Toy Biz would get the rights to the toys that came from that movie. And so that made making the movie itself less profitable, less of a profitable idea. Right. Right. If you're not the one getting money from McDonald's for the, uh, you know, for the Happy Meal toy or whatever for us, you know, whatever thing that's coming out of the movie, then that makes that movie much less appealing as a concept. Why would I do that when I can go to this other thing and buy something and get the toy rights with it? Right. But the toy rights were locked with toy fair with toy biz and Perelman was never going to let toy biz give up its exclusive right to do Marvel toys. Right. So Marvel finally in 1996 realizes that that's part of the problem. 
you know, realizes that's not a thing we can fix. Studios are never going to be interested in our stuff if we have that deal. So Marvel, the, the, the portion of Marvel at that point that like owned a piece of Toy Biz, uh, sold its share of Toy Biz to somebody else and took that money and formed a company called Marvel Studios. And that company, they started investing money into to turn it into a studio that would handle their own movies. And of course, this would go on to be much more important later. But it actually was founded in 1996, and it was paid for out of them selling out their share of the toy biz as a company. Right. Uh, also in 1996, Chip Goodman died. Uh, Martin's son, the guy who was running the you know the porn magazine side of of the former business, um, and once again gets does not get mentioned at all uh, you know in any of the the comics don't refer to him or anything uh, for that. He was only uh, fifty five years old at that point, which is a shame. Yeah, it was really young. So in 1996, Marvel is now looking around once again. They're trying to cut costs as po- you know as best as possible. And they're looking at a bunch of titles that are just not paying for themselves, right? You've got all of these Avengers titles, Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and Fantastic Four. None of these titles are paying for themselves. And there is a movement kind of afoot within Marvel to say, you know what? We should just cancel these. We should just, you know, like the the, the company should just concentrate on Spider-Man and X-Men. This should be the things that, that we have going forward. And instead of doing that, uh, Marvel does a deal with a bunch of the people who left Marvel for Image. Uh, and that program is going to be called Heroes Reborn. And it will begin with a series called Onslaught. And basically what they will do is license their characters uh, as in a third-party arrangement to McFarlane and Liefeld and uh, uh, a couple other people. Uh, Jim Lee, I think, had one of them. Um, to basically take over doing those titles. They will restart over with a new number one, uh, and it will take place in a completely different continuity from the Marvel Universe. In fact, we will write them out of Marvel continuity with an X-Men story, right? We will create Onslaught as an X-Men villain, and part of the story will be that he is just going to, you know, shoot these guys right out of the universe and send them off to another universe. And then Marvel will basically just collect the profits. We'll have no expenses for making these comics, and we'll collect just a share of like the licensing profits because, of course, Rob Liefeld is absolutely convinced that he can make more money. Uh, you know, he, he can do a better version of Captain America that will sell more uh, than anything that Marvel is in fact actually doing. Uh, this is seen by most of the people still on board at Marvel who have not jumped ship at this point because of the, you know, the, the cash problems as basically screwing over their own people in favor of rolling out the red carpet for those traders who are part of the reason we're in as much trouble as we're in, right? If those guys hadn't left for image in the first place, we'd be making more money than we are. And so they leave and within four years, we're suddenly rolling out a red carpet for them and basically giving them everything they want. Uh, in favor of the guys, you know, or, or in, instead of the people who actually stayed, who were actually loyal to Marvel, right? Um, Mark Gruenwald, who was one of the great Marvel writers and editors, and kind of if, if anybody loved the Marvel Universe more than Mark Gruenwald, uh, you know, he was never met, dies of a heart attack literally in the middle of the Heroes Reborn onslaught negotiations. 
And it is said within the Marvel offices that his heart was broken over the loss of Captain America, that that's what killed him. Basically, he had been he had been unwell to start out with. But the idea that Marvel themselves were not the were not running Captain America anymore, uh, like finished him off. Now, that's a completely ridiculous thing to say, but it gives you an idea of what the tone was like in the office at that point. Right. (laughs) You know, so here's Um, like it on paper from what we've talked about. It sounds like this should work because these were the most popular comic book creators at the time. Right. Right. Yes. Why is it so bad? Like, why is this just like bad? A, a, because like no writers went with them. Right. right. I mean, like it's, you know, for the, uh, the, the idea that the writer didn't matter anymore was a concept that was like in favor for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but really was never true. Right? right. And certainly had no long lasting effect. Certainly was not something that you could like build a franchise on. You know, mm-hmm. like a, a, a Todd McFarlane cool poses of a character, right? Was not a thing uh, that could uh, sustain something by itself. Even McFarlane himself eventually recognized that, right? Because that's when he right. starts bringing in celebrity writers to work on his own titles at Image, right? Right. And Liefeld and everybody do that the same way, right? That's why Alan Moore comes to Image. That's why all of these people, you know, like are are done work for hire basically because they realize that they can't keep a long term franchise running just on their art. Um, so by the time that this is happening in 96 to 97, uh, well, really basically all of 96, um, the, the, the comics marketplace has like figured out, you know what, there's never going to be any good writing in this, right? Gotcha. It's, it, it just will never be good because they're never going to have a real good writer. And also we're starting to get a little tired. Rob Liefeld's getting really out of hand, right? If you look at those Captain Americas, they're some of the most preposterously exaggerated art, you know? Oh. The, the characters don't look human, right? And that was really cool in 1992. Right. By 1996, that had pretty much stopped being cool. Okay, so basically timing. People had... Yeah, the, the taste, no taste longer, had right. kind of like recovered, right? Basically. Gotcha. So, um, Marvel is still doing, uh, you know, its own... Uh, uh, stunts right like in an effort to like pump these things up right this is when marvel versus dc happened right right is during 96 into 97 um eventually heroes reborn will last a little more than a year i think it's 15 months total before those titles all revert back to marvel and you know like the all of the image writers kind of like are, are done uh dealing with this so in november of 1996 Marvel finally reaches the point, we just can't sustain this anymore. Heroes Reborn is not making us the money that we thought we would. Uh, you know, our titles are falling off in sales. Spider-Man is not paying for itself the way that it had, et cetera. And so they do a massive layoff, right? For a while, they'd had a hiring freeze so that anybody who left just wasn't replaced. But they hadn't done layoffs, right? Like, if you didn't leave, you still had a job. In November 1996, almost one-third of the 345 people who worked at Marvel at that point were laid off in the same month. Wow. And at that point, it seemed clear that the company was coming to an end, right? It's, there's the, the, this is just not a, a viable thing. Um, Carl Icahn, at this point, has now bought most of the bonds. He is now a majority bondholder for the company. Um, at these, you know, reduced rates, right? Like he has bought in at Marvel stock and bonds and that sort of thing at the absolute bottom of the market, 
because he sees it, he's a, he's a junk bond guy, right? Like, and as far as he's concerned, Marvel's a junk bond, right? So he has come in and now that like things have fallen apart so badly, he starts maneuvering to take over the company. And his plan is to strip it for parts, right? Mm. It's, there's some of these uh, characters and concepts and that sort of thing are still valuable, but making comics, that's just not a, a worthwhile way to spend your money, right? Mm-hmm. And so in order to keep him from taking over, Marvel's management files Chapter 11 bankruptcy a month after Icon starts taking over the process, a month after that layoff. And they file Chapter 11 and submit a plan for how they're going to get out of, uh, uh, you know, out of debt, right? Like what, what their what their business plan is going forward to let the let the people who are who are stakeholders, the bondholders and shareholders, vote on the plans. Um, they kill Heroes World as a company, their mm-hmm. own distribution company, because clearly that didn't work. They sign an exclusive deal with Diamond, which is like the biggest distributor left running. Right, mm-hmm. uh, and come back to Diamond basically, and say, okay, in fact, Diamond is now the only place that you can get Marvel from at all. Icon, for a bit during the bankruptcy, winds up like being placed in charge by the courts. He is actually becomes the new publisher of Marvel for about three weeks <laughs> because there's nobody else to do it. Right, like the company is like so like lost all of its upper management and everything. Right. Um, and so Icon, of course, doesn't know anything about running a company. And uh, what he does basically is, okay, I need somebody to come in and manage this company for me un- until I've got time to tear it apart, right? Like you've still got to like, you know, go into work every day and function this. And that's where he hires a guy with the hilarious name of Joey Calamari. That's amazing. And Joey Calamari is like this guy who's been a hanger on in the industry for a while. He's never, he's worked for a bunch of different companies. He's never made any money, but he has managed to sell himself to Carl Icahn as an expert in the comic book business. And Icon has no idea. Icon totally believes him, right? Joey Calamari <laughs> basically shows up one day in the Marvel offices, walks into the office and announces that he's the new president. Nobody at Marvel knows this guy. They've never heard of him before right and he has just walked in so they're all on the phone with their lawyers and stuff trying to figure out who this guy is because he just moved into the office you know and he's like throwing things away and like putting in his new desk and we don't know who he is and is this real should we call the cops right it's like that level of (laughs) of insanity in the office at that point right uh so joey calamari to his credit having come in like this you know crazy person coming in to take over immediately starts making some decisions that really aren't that bad, right? As much fun as like we're all making of the idea of Joey Calamari coming in, um, the first thing he does is say, okay, we need an editorial director, and he hires back Chris Claremont and convinces him to come back from, you know, from being a freelancer, basically, to become the new editorial director of Marvel. And you're, everybody's kind of like, that actually made sense. Right, that's what a brilliant per choice for the job. Right, of course, let's you know, let's let's give Chris Claremont a you know like a the, the job here for this. Uh, Calamari, like in the next month, then does the uh, Marvel Knights deal, where a bunch of they're, they're basically going to create an imprint within Marvel, and one like they had done with Heroes Reborn, uh, but not as financially crippling. They're going to give like freedom to a set of creators and give them their own kind of like subline in Marvel. Right. And in fact, he actually rents out one of the floors of the building that Marvel is in specifically to the Marvel Knights management. 
team who will be a different management team than the people who are doing the regular monthly comics. And part of that management team will be Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. Hmm. Both names, obviously, that, you know, much better known today, but they were largely unknown at the time. But it's Joey Calamari who hired them. Right. And so for, you know, like a few months, this complete nut job who nobody had ever heard of has just walked in and taken over Marvel. And you kind of have to look at it and say, he is way far from the worst guy to have this job, uh, you know, that Marvel has ever had. Right. (laughs) So (coughs) in the end, these shareholders make a separate deal. They don't let Icon keep the company. In fact, um, they basically do a set of mergers within the company so that what's left of Toy Biz joins Marvel as a new company. Um, Perlmutter, who still uh, controls uh, Toy Biz, will stay uh, you know, connected to the company. And one of the Toy Biz executives is a guy named Avi Arad. And Avi Arad comes to be like to to kind of like take over management of the Marvel operation. He immediately hires uh, Bill Jameis as publisher and Bob Harris as the editor-in-chief. And then the Marvel Knights people, he brings in under them as like, you know, like the next level down of management. Uh, and that, you know, is, is kind of like the, the new setup that they will have going forward. And they emerge from bankruptcy uh, in 1998. Uh, after having been bankrupt for, I believe it's, I think it's 14 months total for them to actually like work this deal. Joey Calamari, unfortunately, is fired. Uh, <laughs> but when you kind of like look at his reign, you have to say, it's like, man, they had much worse bosses, you know, <laughs> uh, than this random guy off the street. Uh, in 1998, Marvel Studios co-makes a deal, uh, basically, to get the Blade movie made, the Wesley Snipes Blade movie. Right. That is not only commercially successful and makes 70 million dollars which is a pretty good you know total at the time um but it actually gets a fair amount of like critical acclaim fans like it uh and though marvel themselves because they had been in such a crap position for making this deal marvel themselves only made $25,000 ooh from the blade movie that was the 100% of the total amount of money that they made but what they did get was they convinced other studios that this was plausible, right? Like Blade is not a major character in the Marvel universe. You know, mm-hmm. he had not had his own comic in quite some time. He was like a secondary character in Tomb of Dracula, et cetera, et cetera. You know, not a major character. And yet somebody for very little expense turned that into a $70 million movie. When you do that in Hollywood, a lot of people suddenly pay attention again, right? And they start thinking, oh, man, we could really kind of, you know, we, we could do something with this. Um, Perlmutter uh, tries to bring Stan Lee kind of like back under control. Stan is still on the West Coast thinking that, you know, like he's going to be the, the, the movie guy. Um, and he tries to lowball Stan on his next contract and says, you know, it's like we've been paying you, you know, a million dollars a year just to be the, you know, face of marvel etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you know we're not gonna we're not gonna cut, do that much money uh again here's the, here's your new offer and stan said well if that's gonna be the deal then i'm gonna take you to court and contest whether in fact you actually still own any of these characters i'm gonna i'm gonna start uh contesting your your trademarks and i'm gonna walk away with you know the fantastic four and captain america and a bunch of your characters 
because I'm, I'm pretty sure I can win this case. Perlmutter doesn't know whether that's true, but there's no way at this point, post Jack Kirby and everything else, that he wants to go through that kind of publicity battle with Lee, right? He's like, okay, fine. You, we'll renew your contract at the same old amount of money that you had. And Stan Lee walks off you know, with more millions of, uh, millions of dollars of Marvel's money. <laughs> uh, so now it's 2000, right? Now uh, Jameis has been uh, the, the president. Joe Quesada uh, goes from uh, Marvel Knights to being the editor-in-chief. And Quesada goes out and he gets a bunch of big new name writers, right? Like he gets J. Michael Straczynski and he gets Bendis and Judd Winnick. Grant Morrison, Kevin Smith, all of these people come to Marvel uh, under kind of like the new operation, the new management. Um, and in 2000, right, the X-Men movie comes out, the Whedon X-Men movie comes out. And that one, Marvel owns a big chunk of. That's a Marvel Studios co-production, right? And Marvel actually makes a reasonable amount of cash from that. And now they're in business, right? Now they're actually like doing stuff. Um, the comics kind of like have become almost kind of like a secondary concern, right? There are still the huge summer events that happen every year. We've got another one. We've got House of M and Civil War and Secret Invasion, World War Hulk. All of these things keep, you know, kind of like going on. Nobody really likes, I mean, you know, they, they get the press, they get sales. Uh, some of them aren't bad, but for the most part, that's not what's interesting, anymore, right? Like the new age of Marvel is the age of the TV shows and the movies. And pretty much from that point, we are in what I now refer to as like, it's the Silicon age, right? Or the celluloid age. We've emerged from the iron age. And in this new age, the movie and TV versions of these characters are the real versions, right? When Marvel puts out a Captain America comic, now it's a comic book about the adventures of Chris Evans. Right, Chris Evans is the real Captain America. These are just pictures of Captain. America. Right, and that's a viewpoint change that had never happened in comics before. Right, before when there was a movie, it's like, oh, here's this actor playing the character from the comics. Right, mm -hmm. and now the comics are stories about this character from the movies, who is so much better known as a movie character than they are as a comic book. Comic books have become basically just the IP that generate movies. And over the course of the next, you know, 10 years, right, it's between 2002 and 2007, Marvel Studios basically only does partnerships with other companies, right? They put out the Spider-Man movies, they put out X2, Elektra, Blade, sequels, Punisher, Elektra, all that stuff happens up to X-Men Last Stand, Fantastic Four 2. And then in 2008, the first one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe begins when we have the releases of the Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man, and the Hulk that come out that year. And those are just Marvel Studios. That's Marvel Studios' sole productions. Marvel gets to keep all of the money from that. And that's a lot of money, right? Like that, once again, the company has utterly changed. And Marvel now effectively is a movie brand, a movie studio that incidentally makes comic books. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where it stood now for we're 12 years into that, into that era, right? I mean, comic book sales continue to have dropped off, um, but movies, TV shows, et cetera, are coming out all the time. And 201, they've almost been universally successful. Yeah. 
And that's kind of the world that Marvel is in right now. And Marvel really gets, you know, pretty much full credit for creating it, right? Like DC had no ability to do this and kind of, you know, like followed Marvel into this world. Um, but it's really done it as well, whereas successfully. Yeah, no, neither, neither, you know, financially or creatively. Yeah, there's like one or two good ones, but um, yeah, I mean, there's still good comics out there, but they are very much like you oh, said. Oh, sure. The, any any the, individual, there's there are plenty of good titles, new characters that have been created over the last 10, 15 years, right? We've got, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, the new Spider-Man, right? We've got Ms. Marvel, you know, there's a bunch of uh, characters that have been introduced that people care about a great deal. And there have been individual titles that have been amazing. You know, I'm a lover of the Matt Fraction Hawkeye, just as an example. Um, but Hawkeye and Iron Fist did are just so good. Yeah, uh, Immortal Hulk right now is tremendous. I, I will be very sad when that finally comes to an end because that's yeah. a, that's a title I'm enjoying a great deal. Um, but once again, this is really it, it's secondary, right? It's not what Marvel as a company does first anymore, and that's you know the yep. world that it lives in but that's pretty much you know that it, it took all of you know marvel's history it took marvel's the the 80 years or the 70 years uh, uh you know of time to to reach this level and what four and a half five episodes of, yep. <laughs> of us to tell how it happened right but that's the world that we live in today mm-hmm. and there will almost certainly be a next step somewhere down the line but uh right now disney seems to have its hooks in pretty good at uh keeping us in the celluloid or silicone era like you said Right. I can't uh, make up my mind which of those I like better. So, yeah. Uh, the new, the new, and uh, we're about to go into the, you know, uh, the directly creator owned television era, just like they were, you know, licensing out their stuff to television for a while. Now there's no more of that. They're, uh, you know, both, both DC and Marvel are now producing their own television too, which right. should be an interesting, uh, interesting future. All right, well, that is the history of uh, Marvel as of, you know, uh, 2020. Um, Thank you all for listening. Uh, We know it's been a long one. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us through five episodes, and we needed to tell the story. Um, But I think it's this. it would be good to have these out because uh, we can now kind of, like, refer people back to them and not have to tell stories over and over again. Absolutely. This is like the, the core book. Right, exactly. (laughs) All right, well, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Thanks for coming. Yep, thanks for coming.